and welcome to Sports Talk, brought to you by sportstalk.ie. I'm Denise O'Flaherty and over the past few months I've chatted to a broad range of sports stars and personalities. Our show is sponsored by the fantastic Medell Healthcare and we would like to thank them for their continued sponsorship even in these difficult times. This week's guest is a former referee who is now a referee coach and mentor, a psychologist, blogger, lecturer and broadcaster. He is affectionately known as the Hanging Judge. It's Errol Sweeney. First of all, Errol, how did a man from Ireland end up in South Africa? In the 1980s, as I'm sure your dad will tell you, uh, the economy here was very, very bad and there was nothing, there was just nothing available and uh, work was very, very scarce. My older sister was already out there. She was married to a guy from Birmingham in England. At that time, of course, apartheid was still much in being. The South African government, the white government, they were recruiting overseas artisans, as they called them, qualified people like uh, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, that sort of thing. And my brother-in-law was an electrician. They were offering great conditions and terms. And he took it and went. And they arrived there in 1981. And I'd been on and off to my sister on the phone and so on, talking about South Africa because there was nothing here. And she said, well, come over here. There's work here if you want it. So in 1983, two years later, my baby sister was 21. And instead of having the usual 21st birthday party, she said, no, no, I think I'd like to go to visit Orla in South Africa. So mm-hmm. I said, oh, but I think I'll have a go at that as well because there's nothing here. I mean, yeah. Bits and pieces of jobs, you know. I mean, I was teaching music. I, I was uh, playing in a band. And that's I was driving a school bus. Little bits and pieces of jobs here and there that all brought in money and put the food on the table and kept the, kept the wolf from the door, as it were. We saved up and my wife and I went out and I just fell in love with the place and I said, I'm definitely coming back here. And two years later, I went back and that was the start of a nearly 15-year living in South Africa. How did you get into referee and did you want to get into referee and were you interested in it or did someone manage to kind of say, you know, come here, we're stuck for a referee or how, how did it come about? I was playing in a band called Billy Hughes and the DJs and um, in the break in in Finglas and John Carpenter, who's probably one of the best referees this country ever turned out and thank God he's still alive. He's quite quite elderly now, but he's still alive. He used to love to sing. You know, I sort of got to know him and used to call him up to sing and that sort of thing. And then after the show, we'd be sitting chatting and it came up about refereeing and he was quite well established at that time. And he said, why don't you come and join the referees? They're always looking for referees. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? Uh, And I was playing a little bit of amateur football at the time uh, with one of my local teams, but I was also doing exams on the piano to further my sort of musical teaching. I was tackled one day and I went down on my left arm and I had, I remember it was, it was September and I had an exam coming up in November and I thought, whoops, that's a warning sign. So I gave up playing football and decided to take up John Carpenter on his offer. And I joined the local branch here in Drada and just progressed from there. And with me, I'm in something for the long haul and 100%. I don't go in half measures, 50%. I'm not interested. And um, I decided, oh, I like this. And uh, it was another way of staying involved in football. Mm. And uh, kept going in 1975. Then I was promoted to the League of Ireland. 
just you couldn't support yourself on refereeing. I mean, it, it was a part, it, and still is in Ireland. It's a part-time job, as it were. You get a you get a fee, all right, but it's not full-time like they have in England. Of course, when I went to South Africa, that finished my progress up the ladder, as it were, because South Africa was banned from the international scene at that stage. And by the time to come out of it, I was too late to sort of get back into the international scene. You refereed in South Africa. I suppose in some ways it's a way of getting you to know people and did you find it that was what, what happened when, when you started refereeing or how did you get refereeing over in South Africa? I had done my homework before I left here <clears throat> and uh, at that time of course we didn't have emails and things like that so I was writing letters and when I was there in 1983 I had also done some prep work for that and I had uh, written to the head of the referees there it was a, a man called Aubrey May who's since passed passed on and I'd written to him and he said uh, to cut a long story short he said well when you come to South Africa look me up um, and I did and while I was there, the two weeks I was there, um, he gave me three games. You know, I, I don't want to blow my own trumpet here, but I got very, very good reports mm. from both sides, both teams, uh, the ones that won and ones that lost, and also from him. And uh, he said, you know, we'd love to have you back here. Is there any chance you could come back here? As I said to you earlier, I always had very high standards. I set myself, I set the bar very high for myself, and I always tried to attain it. Back in 85, again, I had done my prep work and said, I'm coming back. I landed in South Africa on the 13th of January, 1985. As it turned out, there was a referee seminar at the end of that month, uh, January, because at that time, remember, it's winter there when it's summer here. Yes. Their leagues used to start around the you know, beginning of March and they would finish with the cup final in November. Um, and uh, so this, the, the, the pre-season seminar was scheduled for the end of January, which I went to, and there were fitness tests and there were written tests and all kinds of other tests. And I passed them all. And um, I thought they'd put me in, being a, on the Premier League here in Ireland, I thought they'd put me in, in the middle, but they didn't. They put me on the line, running the line. And I said, well, okay, okay, that's the way they want it that way. And by sheer chance, uh, I was put in the middle in a quarterfinal of a cup game. Now, I lived in a place called Carltonville, which is about 100 kilometers west of Johannesburg. There was a game which was about another 40 kilometers further on west that the referee from Johannesburg couldn't get to because of very heavy flooding in Johannesburg. And I was phoned and asked to take this game. Now, I'd never refereed a game in South Africa before. I'd run the line. And, uh, I mean, again, I got very good reviews, even from the losing team that lost 4-1. And I gave a penalty against them as well. All of that came out that this guy is fair, he's honest, uh, he's, he's unbiased. And it went on from there. And in uh, sorry, that was eighty eighty six. In eighty seven, then I did semi final of the their FA Cup, and in eighty eight, I did the final of their FA Cup um, in Ellis Park, which is a famous rugby stadium. Yep. And so, uh, the final was there between the two tops in top teams in the country, which were Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates. In uh, ninety nineteen ninety one, I won the referees referee of the year and in 92 uh, the referees referee obviously is voted by the referees themselves in 92 I won the referee of the year which was 
voted on by sports journalists. And um, so it went on from there until up to 94 then. I was asked to retire early by the league and to take charge of the referees, which I reluctantly did because I'd, I'd been enjoying my refereeing. And then the Premier League out there started uh, in 1996 and they brought out a, a chief executive from the FA in London called Trevor Phillips. Got talking to him, there was an incident where there was a lightning strike at Johannesburg Airport uh, and a referee rang me from there and he said, look, there's a lightning strike here. It's going to be from five until seven. My flight was at five o'clock to go to Durban to referee a game at eight o'clock. Uh, he said, I'm not going to make it. I said, okay, a guy was an English guy called Brian Simons. I said, okay, Brian, there's nothing you can do. And I rang the referee in Durban because obviously he was close by. I said, this is the problem, blah, blah, blah. Just get to the ground, pick up a couple of linesmen on the way and just do the game. Now, this is a Premier League game. And when I had it all done and organized, I rang Trevor Phillips then. And I said, Trevor, this is the problem. The referee couldn't go, blah, 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 blah. And Trevor... They used to call him in South Africa the British Bulldog. And he said, oh, fire the referee. And I said, why are you firing the referee? Well, he didn't turn up to the game. I said, no, no, Trevor. The problem is with the league. Arranging a flight for five o'clock, it takes an hour to get to Durban, an hour's flight. Assuming everything is on time, the, 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 the guy will get off the plane and get out of the airport by maybe 6.30. He then has at least a half an hour to get to the hotel. And the game's at eight o'clock. I said, that's far too short. And he said, you know, you're right. And his next words, I'll never forget. He said, why don't you come and work for the league? And I said, well, make me an offer. He said, no, tell me what you want. I said, well, I'll do a little bit of homework. He said, come and have lunch with my wife and myself and bring your wife on Sunday and we'll discuss it. And that was it. That's when I started working for the Premier League. It's amazing how opportunities present themselves and just... Something happens and it, cre- it opens an opportunity and that's how I got in. Our mutual friend, Declan King, was telling me that you sent off um, Brian Robson in a game. South Africa was just coming back into the fold, as it were, the mm. international fold, because apartheid had been lifted. There was a bit of a transition period. The last president there was F.W. de Klerk, the last mm. white president, who was much more of a, a pragmatist and, and liberal than the previous uh, presidents. The South African football authorities that were trying to sort of give the, the, the football world a bit of a G-up. Mm. So they decided to invite out two teams from Europe to compete against two, the two top teams from South Africa, which was Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs. And always on the, on the opening game, the two visiting teams would play each other to really give the, the thing. They called it a, a soccer festival, mm. give it a kickstart. The two teams that they had booked for that particular year, and remember, these were booked a year in advance, and they had no idea the, the plum ties they had, as it were, because 93 was the very first year that Manchester United won the very first current Premier League before the first division. And on that same year, Arsenal had won the FA Cup and the League Cup. You know, they got the two best teams at the time, and they came out, and they played each other on the Sunday. And because I was sort of overseas, as they call them, of, you know, thought I'd have more experience than local referees, I was given the game. I said to Alex Ferguson, who was manager of Manchester United, and I said to George Graham, as uh, the then manager of Arsenal, I said, listen, gentlemen, this is so-called friendly game, but please 
the same laws of the game will apply. So please tell your guys to behave so we can have a nice afternoon out and there'll be no problem. No problem. No, that'll be fine. In fact, Alex Ferguson said to me, if you have any problems with any of my players, just give me a nod and I'll take them off. I said, fine. Now, I also need a team sheet from you and they scribbled out the names of the players and there's some famous players and I still have it here in my scrapbook on that team and it was also the very first year, first time that Roy Keane playing for Manchester United was signed from Nottingham Forest at a price tag of £3.75 million. He was the most expensive player in England. And uh, that was that was the first time he played for Manchester United. But you had the others. You had Steve Bruce and... and um, um, Gary Palliser, probably. Yeah, and, and uh, Schmeichel and all those guys. And on the other side, then you had Ian Wright. Really nice guy. He was playing. David Seaman was in goal. You know what I mean? All yeah. the top guys were there. And um game was feisty enough. I mean, uh, and, and some of the players were really getting stuck in. And um, I was having one particular problem with Paul Parker, who was playing left full, a right full for Manchester United. And I looked over to the bench to Alex Ferguson and said, you know, I indicated by gestures, this guy's giving me trouble. And in, in the end, I booked him. And I said, you know, and he completely ignored me. So I said, OK, the gloves are off. I said to myself, and I'd say to anybody, I've never refereed a friendly match in my life. I've refereed a lot of unfriendly matches. Yes. Of Matches that become very unfriendly. Yeah. And in the second half, the ball was blasted into the Arsenal penalty area by um, Dennis Irwin. Ray Parler, the Arsenal player, put his hands up to his face to protect his face. Because the law says it's the movement of the hand towards the ball, not the ball towards the hand. It's hand to ball, not ball to hand. Isn't that Correct. Yeah. He put his hand up to protect his face. And they were screaming for a penalty. And I said, no, 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 no penalty, play on. And the ball was then blasted out past me and down the field. I was running out, obviously, after the ball. And Brian Robson came out running past me. And in my left ear, which is my good ear, by the way, that's the one I hold the phone to, (laughs) he says to me, ref, you're an effing cheat. I said myself, I ain't no cheat and I ain't no effing cheat either. So law 12 which deals with fouls and misconduct, specifically states that that um, foul, abusive and insulting uh, behaviour and or gestures is an automatic red card. So I pulled out the red card and he was gone. And I was slated from everybody, including Gary Bailey, who at that time had retired and was now a pundit with um, South African equivalent of Sky, mm. which is called Supersport. And he slated me for that without finding out what the real situation was. And I, I said, why, why is he slating me? What have I done? Nobody bothered to ask me what had he done the next day. And I was phoned by the president of the South African Football Association to know would I come and sit at a press conference with Brian Robson just to show that there was no hard feelings and try and throw a bit of cold water because this was world news at the time. And I said, yeah, absolutely, on two conditions. I will not apologize, and I will not withdraw the red card. No, no, we don't want you to do that. Just come in. So I went there, and um, I went there, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. And finally, somebody came out and told me, Brian Robson doesn't want to meet you. 
I said, well, I didn't want to meet him particularly either, but I was asked to come here, and as a courtesy, I'd come here. Now, as I told you earlier where I lived, I'm nearly 100 kilometres from home. Mm. And I said, well, that's fine. You know, I, I have nothing against Brian Robson. I never met him in my life other than on that day, and I still have nothing against him. Yeah. He broke the law, and I'm not going to tolerate that. I was hard that way, Denise, mm. in that I... I applied the laws of the game regardless of who was playing, what the competition was, or what the repercussions were. I never, ever, ever, and I tell you honestly, I never, ever thought about what might happen if I do this decision or that decision. Because I remember saying to a referee one time whom I was assessing, I said, why didn't you send off that player who deserved to be sent off? He said, oh, yeah, you know, I thought about it. And I said to him, I won't tell you the name. He said African anyway. I said, that is your problem. The more you think about it, the more you think of a hundred reasons as to why you shouldn't do it. Now, just want to throw in a little thing here in that I never criticize referees for what they are doing. I will definitely criticize them for what they are not Not doing. You know, you were saying about the the Brian Robson thing. If I'm covering a game and I obviously don't see a foul or anything, I always assume that the referee has sent the player off for dissent. But you were saying about no one spoke to you or no one asked you. Is that something that you would like to see? Not people obviously hammering down the door to a referee, but that a referee maybe after a game, you ask them. I know now in local Gaelic football matches, I will ask a referee, why did you give that second yellow or why did you give the red if I didn't see it and they will tell me. Do you think there should be that bit of communication between referees and, say, managers, players, supporters, so we'll know why that decision was made? In principle, I don't have a problem. But the problem is a question then leads to another question, yeah. lead to a discussion and then can lead to to an argument. And then what? So... If he's going to explain his decision, I gave that because of this. That's well, then that's fine. Leave it there. And instead of somebody coming, and you know, journalists are like that. And I do a bit of journalism. I write. Mm-hmm. A, I was writing for for the Sunday Independent here for a while as well. Uh, so journalists are like that, and I understand that. And I also understand that the 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 old saying that says in journalism, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Oh yeah. Our paper never refuses ink. Correct. So I don't have a problem with that. So long as you say to the referee, why did you give that? And he says, well, it was because of this. End of story. Yes. But when it becomes a press conference type thing or, or a question and answer with several answers being required for the same question, I think that's dangerous. So I don't have a problem with that per se. But the other issue is not a lot of referees would be media savvy. Yes. And they might say the wrong thing at the wrong time that might be perceived as something other than what it's supposed to be. What I would be in favour, and I've written this in my article, I would be in favour of a referee liaison officer yes. to come along and speak to the press and, the re- and then say the referee did this because of that. But when you're going to question the referee, it then becomes an inquisition and an almost cross-examination. And, it, and the referee might say the wrong thing, again, for guys who are not that media savvy, mm might say the wrong thing and that will be blown out of proportion. So in principle, I don't mind so long as it's strictly and tightly controlled. Do you find though that there is 
in some ways I, I find it myself and in recent years and I suppose with social media and that that there is this trial by media now Oh absolutely absolutely you know there's at least 30 cameras at every Premier League yeah. game there's one on each player there's one on each of the match officials there's one on the benches and then there's others that sort of um, scan the crowd looking for various things so Every single, you can actually log on to one particular player or the referee and you can watch him throughout the entire game and you can see his every movement, every time he blows his nose. Isn't that a filthy, disgusting habit these players have, really? And what's even worse, I think, is the director actually leaving the camera on them while they're doing that. I mean, why don't they cut away? But you can see each individual on the field of play for the entire 90 minutes plus, whatever. So... I don't know. It's it's um, it's um. It's supposed to help the game, but I think in some ways it's it's more of a hindrance. And we're referees and we're players. My mum used to always say this: "To error is human," and and that's the thing about it. And you know, sometimes decisions are made in the blink of a second, and then other times, you know, you do wonder why. But to constantly have it then in the media, in the spotlight, again and again and again. Yeah, and there, therein lies another problem, of course, because they're talking about VAR, this video assistant. I was actually going to ask you about VAR, because I think it actually has led to more controversy in England. Like, it was meant to help a referee, but in some ways I think it's left some referees out to dry. Yes. Uh, you see, the referee, in fairness to them, and as I say, I don't criticise mm. them for what they're doing rather than what they're not doing, yeah. they're not doing it, but I mean, the amount of diving and cheating and deception that's going on is just ridiculous. I mean, guys getting touched that my, my late grandmother, who was a tiny woman, you know, if you touched her that way, there's no way she'd fall down. Exactly. But see, what's even worse then is that the referees are allowing that to happen. That's something that I have a criticism of and that not enough referees book players for simulation. It's well, that to be a yellow card, give the yellow card. And it'll stop. I criticise them for what mm. they are not doing, yeah. and that's one of the things they are not doing their job. They should leave those players lying on the ground. The first thing you'll see if a player is coming into the back of another player who who's, has the ball, he if he falls down, you watch very carefully. The first thing he does, the alleged offended player, is grab the ball. So in case he doesn't get the free kick, he makes sure the others don't get it. So he knows. That what he's doing is wrong, but I've seen I've seen another player trip himself. Yes, I mean Raheem Sterling from Manchester City. Yes. He actually tripped himself on the cam. Now, this is where the camera angles are good. Yes, he tripped himself, fell down. Referee gave a penalty, and he then had the audacity to stand up and take that penalty and score, and that was a goal for Manchester it's City. Cheating in ways, absolutely outrageous. But that's what's going on. There's a winning mentality out there. They want to win at all costs and they're going to do whatever it takes to win and ably supported uh, by their managers who yeah. probably want to do it, you know. Yeah, as you said, it's, it's win at all costs. You are a World Cup referee, coach and mentor. And just from listening to you, I can realise you have so much love for the game. But honesty and integrity, they're your two major qualities and I've never seen your referee in a game. Is that something that you like to tell future referees? Absolutely. Um, I believe um, I believe if you sell your honesty, you sell your soul. Yeah. You sell your soul, 
you have nothing left. And the three, the three intangible things in your life, your honesty, your integrity, and your good name, yeah. you can't touch them. And they will be there with you long after you're pushing up daisies. Yeah. Long after. And, and if, you, if you betray those, you're betraying your whole being. That's all I just say to referees when I'm coaching them. And I have coached referees right up to World Cup final level. Uh, I had a, one of my, one of my, what would I call them, my students, for want of a better word. Protégés, we'll say. Protégés sounds better. Uh, he, yeah, protégé, yeah. And the line in the World Cup final in France in 1998, uh, between France and Brazil. And, and that was, that's really the highlight. But I mean, I have other guys there who've been, I have another group of guys who've now since retired, but they were, at, these are South Africans because I was there. Yeah. Uh, we're at two World Cups, one Olympic Games, I think three under 17 FIFA World Cups. And that's what I do. That's what I enjoy. And I'm telling you, I started refereeing, as I was telling you way back when mm. John Carp got me involved, in the 1970-71 season. So effectively, I'm 50 years involved in refereeing. And I can tell you, Denise, I'm as passionate about refereeing today as I was back then, if not more so. I, there's nothing I get greater pleasure out, out of than going out watching referees, doing well, correcting their mistakes, and, and moving on. I absolutely love it. I, I try to get involved with the FAI here. <sighs> Bit of a closed shop, you know. <laughs> I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I'm, and just, I'm just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, um, I just do it now. Uh, I write my articles, and I have, I have certain guys who contact me. Uh, from different continents, actually. And I've actually also started, if I can give myself a little plug here, I've started a, a, a Monday Review show. Uh, it's on facebook.com forward slash hanging judge ref. And I have to explain to you the hanging judge part. When I did the cup final in 1988 in South Africa, there was huge interest as to who the referee was going to be because it was... Kaiser Chiefs and Orlando Pirates, the two top teams. Eagles was always very careful not to divulge the names of referees prior to the actual game. Because at that time, there was a lot of intimidation going in, going did, on. Yes. Uh, what happened was, um, I was phoned on the Thursday to tell me that I was the fourth official. Now, the game's on Saturday, remember? Well, I was very excited because I was only three years in the country. On the Friday night, I got a phone call from the chief executive of the league asking me, could I go to Johannesburg for a meeting? I said, look, I'm already in bed, and for me to go to Johannesburg now, it'll take me at least an hour or more. And he said, yeah, I understand. Uh, that's fair enough. He said, well, let me read you a letter we've just had from the executive committee. Uh, it said that your appointment as fourth official for the above-mentioned game, which was the cup final, uh, has now been cancelled. You are now the referee of the game. Well, I might as well have got up because I couldn't sleep now. I was so excited. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I was driving to the ground at about, oh, about half past 12, lunchtime. And in South Africa, they have a way that all newspapers, they'll get the front page of their newspaper and they'll have it on a kind of a billboard and they stick it on to telegraph poles and that sort of thing. So as you're driving along, you'll see what the different headlines are. The Saturday Star, and it was dated the um, it was dated the 26th of November 1988, and it says Sweeney is mystery ref, and the sub headline says 
big match control in the hands of, in quotes, hanging judge. And that's where I first got the nickname, oh. the hanging judge. And it has stuck with me since. So it's nothing got to do with your referee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, hanging judge? I said, I'm not even a member of the legal profession that will call me a judge. And people still call me that today, hanging judge. And I, I take it as a, as a compliment, actually. Then he goes on to say that Sweeney is a no-nonsense, unsmiling Irishman. Everybody knew where they stood with me. I've often been asked how many red cards I get. I couldn't tell you, or yellow cards. I, I never kept a count of them. I never kept grudges against anybody. Now, I would be conscious that one player or the other might be a little bit devious mm. and behind the back, so obviously you would watch out for him. But everybody started with a clean slate. Uh, and that's how I first got the nickname, uh, the Hanging Judge, and it still stuck with me to this day. You know, you're on about referee and having to keep an eye out. I think um, all mothers would make rev referees because we used to always think my mother had eyes in the back of her head. But you are a man of many talents, also a psychologist. And that's something that I've noticed more and more these days is psychology coming into sport. There's more and more sports psychologists being added to backroom teams. Yes, that's right. Now, mine is not in sport, but mine is that uh, I, I majored in ADD and ADHD. Um, that, that was my major. But I mean, the, the whole thing, I covered a whole, um, covers a whole range of things uh, from human development to uh, stress to, uh, you call it anything. The whole, you know, started off with anthropology and goes right through I, I always had an interest in what people did and how they behaved. Mm. And uh, even if I'm walking down the street, I say, I wonder what those people are thinking now or where they're going. And to them, you can see people going, and to them, whatever they're going to do or where they're going to, that's the most important thing in their lives at that particular moment. It doesn't matter that there's a pandemic or that there's a war in the Middle East or mm. whatever. To them, getting to wherever they're going to, that's the most important thing. So the mind is such a complex a piece of work. And, that it's, it, and it's also it, very fragile. Oh, absolutely, yes. And they'll never, they'll never, it'll never, um, they'll never get to the end that they'll know, know and understand everything mm. about the mind and the brain. I mentioned the sports psychology and I spoke to Ray Houghton um, a while back and we just spoke about the Hillsborough tragedy basically a case of yeah they had a bit of time off and they went to funerals upon funeral and then that was it they were back playing football is you know there was no psychologist there to talk to them and you know even talking to Ray now you can feel how much and how hurt he was like I said some of them probably were suffering from post-traumatic stress oh I've no doubt about it I've no doubt about it and and the the secret of being a good psychologist is to listen I talk to listen because people, it, it's a pent-up emotion in them that they want to get out. They don't want me as a psychologist to, to start talking and talking and talking. They want, they want to talk. And it's, it's almost as if when they talk, they get a relief that it's something off their shoulders or something off their chest or out of their mind. The fact that talking about it is very, very, very important. Uh, and I've had a couple of instances uh, with, with uh, teenagers I've dealt with. It is all about listening. And I think even as journalists, and I, my brother had a, had a thing about, uh, had a post up on Facebook and, and about a conversation. To understand a conversation, you have to listen, not reply. Correct. Yeah. 
And and I always say to to kids, uh, remember God gave you two ears and two eyes. Yeah. Look and listen twice as much as you speak. I remember saying to this young man when I, he loved to read and read and read and read and read and he wouldn't do his homework. And uh, I said to him, you're going to have to do your homework. And it was a three-hour session. And I said to him, I'll tell you what, if you do study for two hours and I'll let you read for the two hours, I'll let you read for the third hour. And uh, I just gradually and gently just took the book away from him. And I was expecting a reaction, but I never got it. Uh, I never got a negative reaction. Yeah, no, my mom always said it about, about people, you know, and as you said about watching people and my mother would be very much like that, that say a woman walks or a man walked out in front of my dad in a car and, you know, obviously beep, beep, you know, giving out. And my mom would say, you know, you don't know what's going through that person's. And that's exactly what, you know, what is happening in life. Sometimes you have to kind of step aside and, as you say, watch a person because we don't know a mental health and that. Sad that for so long it was a stigma. So many players now were coming out and admitting, you know, that they were in dark places. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I'm, I'm sure I could get involved in sports psychology. I don't know if it's a separate issue or a separate mm. subject. But, uh, you know, psychology is psychology. And it's all about dealing with, with people, uh, male and female, mm. and, and the problems that they have. And just trying to get that weight off their shoulder yeah. that they is is becoming unbearable. And, and before they, they collapse under it or crack under it. And, and uh, the signs are not always there. I mean, you hear people committing suicide. And it said that, um, I think this is just anecdotal evidence, I don't know if there's any scientific evidence, it is said that somebody before they commit suicide are completely at peace with themselves. Oh, did you see, did you notice anything? Did they look sad? Did they look yeah. depressed? They don't. Yeah. They've already made their mind up. And, yeah. and uh, that they, as much as the ones who are sad and depressed, need to be looked at and taken care of, as much as the ones who show the obvious signs of depression and so on. It's so, like Robin Williams. Did anyone oh, think that Robin Williams, who made so many people laugh, was searching oh, inside? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But as I said, you're a man of many talents and I realise that once you get into something, you're very passionate about it. So your weekends, is it all always watching sport or um, obviously soccer is there other sports that you would take an interest in I, I like all sports mm. yeah I like all sports uh, soccer particularly yeah. because I was involved in refereeing and people yeah. almost expect me to give opinions on various refereeing decisions and controversies but no I, I, I love all sports um, you know from basketball to even cricket you know my father would never watch cricket. He couldn't understand uh, how people, two teams, could play for five days and still draw. <laughs> so, uh, no, but I, I, I do. I like all sports, even Gaelic. I mean, um, any sports. Love it all. It gives us something, you know, especially in these times, the new normal, I'll call it. Yeah, no, I, I, I like rugby as well. I forgot that one, but there's so many. I mean, I like them all. <laughs> Any kind of sport, even athletics, I love athletics as well. And and I particularly take a stronger interest in where Irish yes. uh, are involved. Thank you so much for the chat. 